Hello and welcome to this episode of the Reset Podcast. I'm your host, Lauren Yo. This is part of my 29 Days of Magic series where I interview an amazing Black woman every single day for Black History Month. And today's episode, I am so delighted to have Aish Davis, who is the CEO of BAC Media LLC. She has a phenomenal story. I can't wait for you to take a listen. So here we go. Hey, Aisha, how are you? Hi, Laura, how are you? Thank you for having me on your wonderful podcast. So excited to be here. (laughs) I'm so delighted to have you. So let's dive right in. As you know, first question, always the same. Answers, always hilarious. I feel yours will be no different. So first question, Aisha, what was your first job? (laughs) So after babysitting Girl Scout cookies and uh, selling Girl Scout (laughs) cookies, my real first job was working at the Kite Site in Georgetown. I was uh, barely 16, almost 17, and I uh, sold kites and balloons, and it was the most amazing job ever. Uh, We had, I I was, it was basically run by these guys, Chuck and Dennis, who were these kind of hippies, and um, I came in in my little (laughs) suits, and, you know, because it was my first job, so I dressed up. I thought you were supposed to, like, dress up with my stockings, and yeah, exactly. I mean, my, that's how my mom sent me out to work, and um, so I sold the kites from a space of loving the colors, and I was really passionate about them, and so I was a good salesperson, and I remember at the first uh, staff meeting, we would have them in the basement, and Chuck would order Uno's pizza from down the street in Georgetown. And I, um, and he started talking about, well, this is Aisha and she's new and she's doing really, really well in the sales department. So I think that we are attributing that to the fact that she looks so professional. So we want to institute a dress code for the, for the store. And if you, I mean, like it was filled with like so many like hippie guys and they were like, no way. I think they were pelting me with things. And so, but it was a really, it was like a family job. It was a wonderful place. Georgetown was really, it was back before there was any neon allowed in Georgetown. So it was kind of like old school Georgetown. You knew every shop owner, you knew everyone on the street. And uh, it was an amazing place to start work. I loved it there. And I learned how to hang glide because I worked there. Because that's what most black women are doing. Hang out hang glide. Yeah, uh-huh. that's exactly what I find most black women are doing. Just chilling out and hanging out, hang gliding. Girl. <laughs> um, okay. All right. So you go from selling kites, literally, um, to hang gliding. Yeah, go to great... kite. <laughs> I mean, it's kind of funny. Like, that is, like, the, the euphemism. And you're like, no, legit, I actually did that. I actually did it. <laughs> Ah, so where you are now. So what has that career journey been like? So, you know, of course, during this, during, you know, the summers when you're in university, you, you do like your regular boring, like temp jobs and those sorts of things. But one of the other things that I did, because um, I, I volunteered for Trans Africa and we were, you know, that back then we were um, really focusing on anti-apartheid, which kind of gives you an <laughs> idea of how old I am. Um, and one of the things that we studied was we studied uh, about the coverage of media, the international coverage of media around certain topics. And that got me really interested in the idea of media and the power of, t- of not only writing and telling a story, but having control over who gets to see the story. Right. Because what was being covered in international media, for instance, was different from what was being covered in the New York Times or the Washington Post or on the radio. And then I realized to a certain extent you're you think that you could you I mean, it's obviously it's different in today's, you know, 
wide world <laughs> internet. But back then, really, you could think of yourself as a well-read, well-informed person and still not have the full story, not even have a, a glimpse of the story. And that's when I started really wanting to do something interesting around media and advertising and marketing. And I knew I was creative. My dad was insistent because he was a lawyer that I go to law school. My mom was an accountant. So she, you know, kind of wanted my father, you know, said, well, do what your father says, because, you know, accounting was definitely not going to be my thing. But um, and I remember I wanted to switch my major to art history because in my heart of hearts, Laura, I knew that I was a creative. But Uh it just it wasn't really it wasn't really um, an opportunity then. It wasn't the way that it is now, which is why I find you so fascinating because um, particularly, you know, for black women, black families, you were going to be a lawyer, a doctor, mm-hmm. an engineer, or an those accountant. Were like, those were the things. Like, so when I, I wanted to, I wanted to go and work in advertising. And so I went to, I, you know, but I, due diligence was not necessarily my thing. Let's just be honest. So <laughs> I went, I went to, I went to one person that I knew because she was working for Gray advertising at the time. And I said, tell me all about advertising. It seems really cool. And she said, Aisha, you work really hard and you don't make any money and you're living in New York and you're poor. (laughs) I was like, oh, none of that sounds interesting to me. (laughs) So I said, so I didn't do advertising, which I should have really done a little bit more research, but that was whatever. So I ended up decamping and going to Asia, to Tokyo with my roommate. Um, We had a program in Asia was, was almost like a graduate fellowship. And you could, we, I went to Asia to teach. We landed in Tokyo, Laura, with no place to live and no not. jobs, oh. <laughs> no job. All we had was this Bedeker's, it, it was back in the day again, pre-internet, Bedeker's Guide to Tokyo. And we'd gone to Berlitz. She lived in Miami. I lived in DC. We'd gone to Berlitz in the summer so we could learn a little bit of Tokyo. And that's literally how I started my postgraduate life, landing in a foreign shore, knowing no one, knowing nothing, just finding my way. (laughs) And I just, I don't know. I think that that's, that is the underlying, it's the same, it ties back to the hang gliding, right? There's always the spirit of adventure in the choices that I make, wise or not. It is, it is the underpinning to how I move through life. Wow. (laughs) <laughs> so what is it you actually do now? Because it's a lot of fun things. Yeah. So basically, while I was in Tokyo, I, I, you know, and it's so fun, funny when you look back when you're in your 20s versus now, right? Um, I was, I had spent two years in Japan and I, you know, I taught, I worked for a um, company. It was basically the precursor to what we now know as um, language translation. And we were like the Nikkei and Reuters and those other people were our um were our clients. And so, you know, it was, it was a technology firm. And so I had all these like kind of different, you know, jobs in Tokyo. So I really got to understand and I loved Japan. I loved living there. And I bet it was two years. And I thought, okay, it's time to go back because two years, everybody else who had not, you know, decamped to a foreign country had either finished business school or was, they were all in law school. So there's a mounting pressure and I made this decision. I had to make a decision before I left and I had to decide, is this going to just be a blip in my, my kind of personal development, or is this going to be the basis of a profession for me? And one of the things that moving to Tokyo did for me is it allowed me to um, 
explore myself away from my parents, right? Because I mm-hmm. was, you know, you know, you're you're black women are developed by their parents. You go to church, you, you know, you spend time with your family, you know, they help you decide how you dress and how you think and where you're gonna go to college, like all of those things. And and it's great in one way, but in another way, it's kind of like, well, who am I independent of all this? But being so far away where, you know, I only had a couple of friends and I had to make new friends and I had to forge and like, who am I? What is my identity? I, I really understood at that moment in time that I had to do creative things. That was the only place that really made me happy. And, you know, when I lo- think back to wh- what I loved at the kite site and why I loved the kite site, it was because I was surrounded by color, like all of the color of the balloons and the colors of the kites. Like there was something about that that spoke to me. And so I decided that this is what I was going to pursue. And so I ended up meeting, um, there was a friend that I'd had, a very good friend for many years who was from Trinidad, now on, and another friend, um, he introduced me to Yasko, who's one of his good friends. And the three of us formed this company that was going to do cultural exchange and cultural activities between the U.S. and Japan. And um, as it turns out, we... um, now think about this. This is before email. This is before WhatsApp. So if you wanted to speak to someone in the foreign country, you had to, you know, call international with ATT or you had to fax. Both of which, both options were incredibly expensive. But this is what oh, we wow. decided to do. So, um, so it it turned out, you know, by series of events that Yasko and I, who barely barely knew each other, ended up forming this company. And we were two young girls and she had lived in Spain. And so she was she spoke Spanish and English fluently. And we just we bonded because we both were these adventurers, you know, and um, we started this company. And one of the first things that we did that was really kind of prominent is we took YoMTV Raps to Japan. And we did it with Fab Five Freddy and Jack Benson was the producer. And we produced it was two episodes and it was all about this you know, what, what the, how hip hop had influenced the entire Japanese culture. The girls were going and getting their hair spiral curled on the base. They were sitting in tanning booths. You know, we met, you know, rappers who could not speak English, but could rap fluently in, in Patois. I mean, it was this amazing experience. And I just remember, I mean, of course, this is way back in the day, but I remember Fab told me that uh, like Snoop called him and said, man, I didn't know we were having that kind of influence. And I felt like to a certain extent we opened, like, this is what we wanted to do. We'd opened this gate to show like the, how how powerful culture was, particularly among the youth, how it was just spreading like wildfire globally. And the way they were getting YoMTV Raps back then is they were getting VHS, like videotapes and playing them you know, with at home and with friends. And that's really how they were building out the Japanese youth culture. Um, and eventually Warner Music ended up signing, you know, some young kids, you know, to to uh, Japanese artists to, to rap on their label. And, you know, it kind of people really, you know, now the space where, you know, Japan was growing as a, as a big music market and it was seen as a big music market, as a secondary market outside of the US, but no one really realized how powerful hip hop was. And this was one of the first kind of indications that this is where it should be expanding. So it became this, you know, we were, it was like part of that zeitgeist. And we ended up doing, I you know, through my career, I've ended up doing really kind of cool things like that. There was, um, um, one of the first exhibits of Iranian art in the United States, you know, after the, you know, for 30 years after the Iranian hostage crisis, I was one of the producers of, we, you know, worked with the group, um, Chevron was the sponsor, we worked with the group, we brought it to the, um, 
to the ironically the Ronald Reagan building in Washington DC <laughs> and <laughs> and um it was an amazing for me it was an amazing learning experience because you know I had grown up in that time when it was all about Iran and here was a group of people they were like well we were Persia first and this is what Persia is and this is what our culture is and it was it was an a most amazing ex, um experience just in terms of you know the young people that were there that said you know this is a side of us that never gets to gets to be discussed because you know we're you know tied into all of these other kind of derogatory indications of our culture and of course I understood exactly what they were saying because as a black person you have to always say no no look at the look at the good side as opposed to what is again you know tying back to media and how the power of media and the visual and, and all of that uh, can determine how people see you as opposed to what the media was necessarily portraying and so um I don't know. So that's really kind of been my bailiwick, like finding these kind of really unique projects that um, that end up having uh, having something more important to say. Not not and I'm not trying to elevate in any way, you know, myself, but the projects themselves end up without, you know, not necessarily at the beginning with that with that goal, but in the end, they kind of blossom organically into their own message and into their own voice. And it and it always makes me so excited to see that and to feel that. Um, but uh, it's it's a very far. I remember the very first time I took one of my projects to um, to a company and I said, you know, because I my original my original again, I you know, when we first started this was before sponsorship was really understood to be a thing. You know, I mean, now everyone, you know, sponsorship, influencers, all of that is everywhere. But in the 80s, it wasn't that way. In the late 80s, early 90s, companies weren't thinking that way. They weren't necessarily, they were still like strict marketing, strict advertising, but experiential, uh, that wasn't a word for them. And mm -hmm. so um, you take these, these projects, these ideas, and I remember the first time I took it to someone and they said, okay, well, what's my ROI? Because I was all about, this is how the arts are important. This is how culture is important. This is how, you know, this is how it makes a difference for the young people. I was really strictly focused on the benefits, but I did learn very early on. It was a very, one of my very first meetings. And the, and the gentleman said, Aisha, what's my ROI on this? This is a wonderful project. What's my ROI? And I was like, I don't know. And he said, no, never again, must you go to a meeting and not understand what it is that I need out of this, what success looks like to me and how I have to be able to deliver this back to my company. Otherwise, you know, I can support the arts by going to buy a ticket somewhere. But I, I this makes no sense to me in a corporate environment and in a and in a deliverable to my client department or to my, you know, um, supervisors de um, department if I can't tell them how this is going to benefit overall. And that was that was one of the first things I learned. And it was one of the most important lessons I learned. And so. We've been able to, moving forward from that, really understand the nexus between culture, economic development, um, you know, brand placement, all of those things that were, you know, initially very new to me and kind of a little bit new to the industry and now are simply like, that's like 101. Like, if you don't understand that from the minute you're talking about your event, your culture, program, whatever it is, people were like, why are you even here? Why are you in my office? Go away. I love it. I absolutely love it. You're like, what are y'all doing? I don't get it. What's happening? I, I love how you're like, oh yeah, I just like, you know, so, you know, brought MTV, MTV to Japan and I just, you know, build it. But yeah, just, yeah, just my usual stuff. Uh, I think you've got to have a pretty incredible career. You should just saying, <laughs> just saying. 
Um, and you've got a lot of interesting things are happening right now. Can you share some of them? Yeah, so it's really exciting. So one of the things I also realized as I was moving is we were doing more and more events, more and more of the events that we were doing were, de- were demanding media and media integration, like actual like video and so on. And so one of the things I realized is that I was as, as I move forward in my career, I wanted to start doing more media and focusing on the media side because you I, I can't do events until I'm, you know, as I get older and older, your body can't take it. I'm just going to hear, I'm telling all the young people out there today, if you're involved in events, if you're involved in experiential, figure out a way to try and become a Laura where you're managing a bunch of people. <laughs> <laughs> uh, <laughs> yeah, <laughs> um, because eventually uh, it will that, take a toll on yeah, you. Yeah. Um, <laughs> Let me but, remind um, you of something. Um, <laughs> as as the fact that I was door bitch at an event recently, it never goes away. <laughs> it's so true. It's so it true. Never goes, even if you're like, I am only here to take a dinner, somehow I end up still doing something. So <laughs> it's so um, true, Laura. I was laughing as I was saying it because um, you know, we do work on it. You know, when I do live events now, even though I'm like, oh no, you still end up in the mud. You think that part of the energy is, yes, this must get done. So you do it. Like you don't, you don't, like you can't, there's that, my, um, one of the people that works with me calls it my takeover spirit. Um, but you have to, <laughs> she's like, Aisha, you have the takeover spirit and I always have to watch out. But so as we know, this, this is the hip hop's 50th anniversary. And so one of the things that's exciting about that is looking at it from a global perspective, because obviously having started my company in Japan, I've always um, wanted to continue to do things from a, a, a global um from a global lens. I mean, I think we've produced, we have produced events on every single continent except for Antarctica. And you know, I'm heading there. I'm going to find a way to do something. I'm going to find a way. I'm going to hang glide into Antarctica if I must. So um, one of the things that we're really focusing on, particularly around this hip hop 50th um, celebration is um, well, how is it being celebrated globally? How do we highlight and feature um, some of the global artists that are out there. Yes, everybody talks about Afrobeats, but there are things happening in the Caribbean and Asia and, and the Gulf region. And so that's one of the that's one of the things that we're kind of really excited about for this uh, 2023 year. And to, to also really give, I mean, that's part of what BAC is focused on. When we had a kind of our launch event in Abu Dhabi, we said, you know, we want to, we had poets and we had musicians and we had you know, from all around the, um, they were living in Abu Dhabi, but they were from all around the Middle East and, and East Africa. And it was exciting to do it that way because it lets you realize that you have an opportunity to give a microphone to young people around the world. And they have so, so many amazing things to say and continue to give you the opportunity to grow as a presenter because you have to learn a little bit bit more about who they are and how they um, want to express themselves. So you it, it challenges you a little bit. And it also just kind of, um, I don't know, it keeps you fresh and, and, and you don't get, you know, because things can get a little bit stale if you allow them to. But yeah, that's one of the things that we are really focusing on in 2023. Very excited about it. Awesome. I'm super psyched for it. And there might be something we're doing together. Well, stay tuned. Stay tuned. Um, <laughs> uh, so obviously you've had a tremendous, amazing career. 
but especially since you're an events person, I know this is going to be true for you, that you've had a lot of challenges. You're like, there is no way I am ever going to get out of this and find my way through. And then you did. I'd love for you to share your experience. Woo. So, and I, and I'm going to, I'm going to use this as an example to give advice to young people, young black women in particular. Um, I'm not going to say this specific event, but I got involved in an event with the executive, the person who kind of put it together was not necessarily someone that I should have trusted to put it together. And, but I had the can do spirit to get it done. And I did. But I'm going to tell you, I was in tears, not externally, but you know how you cry on the inside. Mm-hmm. I every morning, I, I just it was brutal. But I remember one of the vendors looked at me, even though it, this whole thing was just so I mean, it was it was brutal from every single angle. And I and I remember the vendor said to me, he said, I just want you to take a moment. He said, as hard as all this has been. There's only one person who could have made this happen. We were taking bets that this was not going to happen and you made it happen. So just no matter what, take that away from you, take that away from this experience. And so what I would like to say to black women in every single aspect of your life, uh, particularly professionally, just because you can do it and you can make it happen doesn't mean that you should. And be careful about throwing your pearls before swine. And I mean that in the most... (laughs) Literal sense, ladies, because, you know, part of why we are so successful is because we can make lemons out of lemonade. I mean, lemonade out of lemons. Sorry. But the reality of it is, is some people just need to stay lemons. Like we need to move on down the road and find new people to share our shine with because people will take and take and take and take. And for some reason, we are the one group of people on this planet who have been <laughs> have con- conditioned to give and give and give. And so when you talk about this magic in, that Laura is so wonderfully kind of describing us as having, some people don't need our magic. They don't deserve our magic. And we, and if I could say anything to Black women, because we're always underpaid, we always overperform. If we could be a little bit more discreet about how we use our magic because there's a toll with that there's a strength that we give to people there's a it takes a toll on our bodies it takes a toll on our minds it takes a toll on our finances and we have to be careful about how because the person who did this who was the head of it was a black woman we have to be a little bit more respectful about how we do this with one another but we also just have to be a little bit more protective of ourselves because the gifts that you have don't need to be given to everyone that's kind of my, that's my, I find, that's what I saw coming on the other side of that. And I've been a lot more protective of, of what I've been given because I think, and Laura, I'm sure that you see this. Um, some of the things that come to us so easy that we're like, oh yeah, you know, I just thought about this. Not everybody's out here thinking of these things. Not mm-hmm. everybody's fabulous as you ladies are and it's brilliant and it's creative and it's hardworking and it's smart. Like, Katherine Johnson was the one figuring out that math for the, for, to get us to the moon. All the other people weren't doing that, but it came to her naturally. It came to her easily, right? But for those other people, they couldn't have done it in a lifetime. So that's, you know, everyone takes from that, that movie Hidden Figures like, oh, yay. No, what we have to remember is that those things that we have been gifted and as, as God-given talents are not given to everyone. And we need to 
we need to ration them a little bit more and make sure that when we do give them that they are treated with value, respect, and they are compensated properly. How about that? Well, damn. (laughs) (laughs) Let's put this way. I can write a book about everything you just said because I agree wholeheartedly. <laughs> um, yeah, I mean, look, we've all been there. Um, and, you know, protect your pearls from swine is by far the most amazing <laughs> I've ever heard <laughs> to be like protect your magic, but accurate. And I think I'm gonna steal that um, because it's true. I mean, it's like. True. I I look at sometimes the stuff that we do for work at what work that we do for our team and like you know the connections and the things that we do to make things happen just literally it's like breathing for us and then and because it's like breathing for us other folks think it's like breathing for them like no mm-mm, no not everybody can do that like I make it look really easy because I make it look really easy because of me it's nothing to do with you that's and right. Think, and I think sometimes we take that for granted and we do have to hold on to that a little bit tighter and be more selective. I think in my, uh, you know, as I've grown in my career and I, as I've become, you know, so, I'm a, a slightly different person now because I'm no longer not, I'm not technically an entrepreneur anymore, but in my head, I will always be one, which is, which is necessary to do the work that I do. And I'm always like, yeah, that requires a different kind of skill set. Right. And, it it isn't something that's taught even it's not even something that's taught because I think about I think about when I was younger and like you know things that I used to do and come up with and I'm like oh yeah probably if I didn't pay attention yeah this is always what I'm gonna end up doing because <laughs> like <laughs> so, you know finding things out you know you know making things happen building with my hands and um being a good storyteller has been something I've been really good at since I was like three. <laughs> so That's amazing. It's like, but like you think about that and there's so I mean, like I said when you meet folks in our industry especially whenever we meet more black women we're like hey I know you're amazing I don't even know because if you're in this business I know you're amazing because there's no way you would have made it like zero um and we all glom onto each other like oh my god hi because <laughs> like I know what you've seen you know what I've seen so like it's in the same pool it's just okay um so it's it's it is something very very unique and I think we we do have to, you know, I was telling someone the other day, I was like, listen, you know, black women are not superheroes. We are not from Krypton. That's right. Uh, and so, like, we are we are human, and we should treat ourselves as such, no matter what anyone tells you. Even though, even though we are wonderful magic and awesomeness, we're human, and we must take the time to rest and say no and make sure that it's a full-on sentence without something that you need to repeat yourself for. Uh, so I, I, I wholeheartedly agree with you. And speaking of which, in terms of like the mountain of things that we have to do, how does Aisha take care of herself? What do you do for your self-care? I'm sure you do. I hope you do. <laughs> yeah, you know, it's interesting. I was talking to someone about, you know, what self-care um, looks like to me, right? And what it feels like. And so, you know, it's simple things like, going to the ocean and just sitting there and staring at it, which is one of the reasons I, you know, moved south to Florida so I could be close to the beach. Um, But I think one of the things that I learned, you know, you do things like spa day, I've got every gadget, I'm a gadget girl. So every gadget, whether it's eye massager, the head massager, the foot, I've got all of those things. But I think one of the things that I've really realized about self care
self-care that I learned from my mother did I, that I didn't recognize it as self-care was eternal curiosity and allowing yourself to take the time to explore those things. I remember my mom at some point decided she wanted to study fencing because she had seen My mother was an, an Olympic athlete. She was amazing. And what she remembers at the Olympics, they were fencers. And so she was like, I always wanted to study fencing. And so I would go to my, watch my mom at her fencing classes. And, you know, so there, you know, whether it's, I decided, oh, I wanted to take boxing or now I'm studying piano. Or I realized that what I learned from my mother, what self-care looked like was that there are those things that are just done for the purpose of your own self-exploration and to to allow yourself to make the time and the space to do those things. That's the ultimate self-care, because that's part of the, you know, coming back to us creating these amazing experiences for everybody else. What does creating an amazing experience look like for yourself? And whether that's going on a trip or, you know, doing something, going to a concert or you know, sitting on the beach and just staring and just being, you know, I think for me, it's like every day I think, oh, I want to learn this new thing. And um, I, I learned that from my mom and I do. So, you know, at one point I wasn't that great of a, now I'm a really good cook or, you know, and so now I, and you move on to something else. And I literally ordered a keyboard so I could, I studied flute when I was younger and now I want to learn how to play piano. And I recognized in that, that that was something I learned from my mother. That's how self, that's what self-care looks like learning and challenging and using your mind in new and different ways. And I am so happy that that's kind of where I secretly landed without even realizing it. Isn't that always the best part about it? Uh, when it's not a plan, it's like, oh, this works for me. Uh, I know. I know. I always say, I I'm like, your mother makes you a mini me without you realizing it. <laughs> they do. I really do. It's so bizarre. <laughs> even when you try not to be anything like that. Oh my gosh. I, I caught myself yesterday when I was like, oh my God, that is that is so much my mother. And I'm like, yeah. Uh-huh. Yeah, she yeah. made you her little mini me. I remember I was wearing something that my that someone that was like, oh, is that your mom's? I'm like, no, this is mine. And I was so proud because I had picked it out myself. And then I was like, oh no, it, this looks exactly like I am my mother's mini me. <laughs> then so you fun. catch yourself saying stuff to you like, wait, what? Oh God. Uh, like, I, if Absolutely. you look, look around, like, was my mother just saying that? Like, wait, no, I just said that. Oh okay. <laughs> Um, so I, I fully understand um, that as well. Um, and, you know, looking back on all the things I'm speaking about, you know, you being your mom's mini-me, what do you think you'd tell 18-year-old Aisha? There's a couple of things I would tell 18-year-old Aisha. One is, girl, do you have ADHD? Because you are like a little jumped around. I mean, I would definitely, I would say to, I would say to 18-year-old Aisha, you really you you need to understand more what it means to be a creative person because my brain functions differently. I mean, I was kidding a little bit about the ADHD, but my brain functions as a creative brain functions. And and if you have like a strictly like kind of straight mathematical analytical brain that way, it's it does function and feels different when you are a person who's constantly living in the space of imagination and creativity. And, you know, even from a standpoint of, you know, looking at physics and looking at, you know, like, yes, I'm interested in quantum physics, but I'm interested in terms of how it ties to, you know, metaphysical existence. I'm not interested in what the formulas are. I'm interested in what the applications are around, you know, what does it mean when we, you know, leave this planet? Or what does it mean in terms of how you, you know, can quantify and 
your own individual movements and thoughts and, you know, like all of those things from a very kind of spiritual standpoint, but I'm still interested in the science, but how it ties back to the aesthetics of the religion or the philosophy. So I don't think I had enough understanding that that was a valid place to be and to exist and to think. And I don't think I had the tools or the language to really express that. But so I would say if I had to go back to 18 year old Aisha is, you know, spend a little bit more time figuring out who you are, not who you want to be or what you want to be, but who you are and and to really understand what makes you tick. I'm so excited and proud of you know, young black women who I see today, women like yourself, Laura, who have a very strong idea at a very young age of who you are and therefore allow who you are to shape who you want to be and what you do. Because I think for so many of us, we end up being told or trying to figure out what we want to do. And then then we have to go back and figure out how to fit in who we are into who we want, who what we are doing. And that's a backwards way. I love the generation of you know young women who are very clear about the different things that excite them and don't. And, you know, the influencers who build it around their family or around their activities like that's a freedom and that's a, a, a self-assurance that I'm so excited when I see it and when I when young women stick to their guns and they're you know and I'm I'm always I'm always now because you know I I try to to the extent I can't provide women with the kind of support to say no no he I see your light go for your light go for what you want don't don't let the setbacks get you back and so that since since that's what I tend to say to young women today I think if I could say back to 18 year old Aisha no 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 just sit down, take some time, figure out, you know, who you really are in terms of what makes you happy. And it's valid. And though it may not look like it in the real world, it is a valid existence if you can just kind of sort it out and, and build your path from there. But, and you know, and unfortunately, that's something that kind of wisdom tends to come when you get older. And so, you know, I, I tend to take the Madonna approach. I remember when they asked her at some point, although it's kind of antithetical to how she's now presenting herself, but when she go when she went back to her 18 year old self, she said, she, they, she said she just would look at her and say, you know, um, she, she cherishes her because everything that that girl did and as crazy and wild as she was, has led to who, who she is today. And so, since I know that some of what I would tell myself is based in a wisdom that I now have and probably learned the hard way, I would just say, go ahead, girl, with your with your bad self, and your little Putumayo hair. I mean, Putumayo skirt and Astor Place haircut. Just do what you got to do. <laughs> Keep it moving. <laughs> I love it. Oh, wow. The Astor Place haircut, girl. <laughs> I know. <laughs> you know what? I mean, there was like a little bit of a revolt with the black with my black beers. They were like. Aisha, we think we need to have an intervention. We don't know what's going on, but your hair seems to be manifesting some issues there. <laughs> I completely understand. Yeah, when I forgive my hair, I, I, I've always had issues with my hair. I, I, I'm the happiest with my hair right now that I've ever been because <laughs> I don't have to do anything to it because I, I just hate doing my hair. It, 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 ignore, it, no, it annoys me to no end. Um, so my hair is curly now. It has been for like six months. And I'm like, I am. I don't think about going back to being straight for a while. Like, I'm going to keep this curly hair because it's the easiest for me to deal with. <laughs> so I completely understand. Um, I love that. And so last question for you. Uh, do you have a give and or an ask of the audience? 
A give or an ask. That's interesting. Um, so I don't necessarily have an ask personally for myself. I think that the ask that I would is, and I, I was just, and this, uh, Laura and I just talked about um, beforehand, um, one of my um, wonderful mentors, uh, Lou Stovall, is, you know, moving towards the end of his life. And um, one of the things that he was focused on in his art was beauty. And I think that there, I'm reading this book about beauty now, and there, Andre Leon Talley, I remember, you know, like, he was talking about, there was a dearth of beauty, that's like his famous quote from um, one of the documentaries they did about, um, I think it was either the September issue or, you know, the Met Ball. Um, I would just ask of all of us, I'm, I'm kind of trying to shape myself this, this way too, is that there's such a coarseness in the way that we are living and how we are communicating and what we are tending to amplify in terms of just the visuals, uh, what we're listening to. And I mean, I'm guilty of it too. I mean, I'll listen to some crazy stuff too, but I'm just saying that if we could apply our magic to focusing on some more of the beauty, right? The, the beauty of who we are as a people, who we are as women and, you know, kind of shape the world in that way. Because I think that the generation, the youngest generation, Gen, I don't know, Z, Z, Z plus, I don't know what they are. They're so young now, but they need that. And I think particularly black girls need that because there's so many of the other imagery and so much of the other things are being said to them that if we, those of us who have agency and have power could show them that there is that coarseness is not always the way and that, you know, that there's strength and beauty and that there's, you know, something about the steel magnolia. There's something about the power of the positivity. Um, I'm not trying to be Pollyanna, but I am trying to, I mean, I just feel like the ugliness is, is drowning us to a certain extent and, and it's drowning black women and it's drowning black girls in a way that I think is, um, that needs to be addressed in some, in a way that I don't know if we're, always up to that challenge. Um, that would be my ask. Um, and my give is that I'm going to try in the work that I do um, moving forward to emphasize the beauty of who we are as women and who we um, and who we are as a people. That's that's my you know, that's, I guess, is that, does that work as a give? That as works. A give and get? Okay. There are no rules. <laughs> okay. Uh, <laughs> I, I, didn't like, try, I, I didn't make a decree. It's all good. No, I think it's wonderful. And I, and I would agree with you. It's why I only do Black Joy stories. Um, It's why I make sure that stuff, I, 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 there's lots of stories to be told about, about, about us. And some of them are much more harsh. Somebody else can do that. That's just That's right. Oh, my God. I just had that exact same conversation, Laura. Let that be somebody. I mean, like, they're always showing our trauma. Trauma they're porn. Trauma. I just oh my joy. Gosh. It's literally, again, this is literally why I see 29 Days of Magic, because like someone sent me an email while we've been talking, and I was like, it was just so lovely. And because she said, I just love the joy that I've been hearing. And I was like, yeah, that's clearly what this is. Like, I... I don't disparage anyone for the stories that they tell. I just make a conscious decision that the stories that I will tell will be brown in positivity and joy and laughter and fun and silliness and some heart. Like I I just can't I don't have room in my I don't have room in my brain for darkness. We've all been through too much. Amen, girl. 
Woo, that's so, absolutely. Like, what do they say? Like, that's the word, right? They, I mean, like, <laughs> seriously. <laughs> I just don't. I don't. It's just, they, I, I think we just have to, I agree with you. I think especially for, like, there's all these articles about how, like, you know, kids are just under so much strain and, um, and I think it's, uh, if you can just find a little bit of joy and you can share that with folks, you never know how much incredible impact that has. And I, I get reminded of that quite often, like just be good and kind and chill and, you know, making someone laugh, giving someone a reason to smile goes so much further than, you know, being the dark cloud, which like I understand, but like, again, yeah, just not my choice. Love that. Absolutely love that. Well, Aisha, um, again, we could talk for hours, you know. We I know, it's so true. <laughs> <laughs> um, but thank you so much for being on the Reset Podcast. Um, you were wonderful. I adore you. Um, we'll put all the details in the show notes for all the amazing, amazing things that you're doing because folks should follow, hire, and um, just be inspired by the amazing work that you do. And I'm so grateful you were able to have some time to join me on the podcast for this. Thank you, Laura. And as I say to you all the time, I'm so amazed by everything that you do. Thank you for sharing this with the with all of us. And I continue to, you know, celebrate and cheer you on because you're a wonderful uh, possessor of magic as well. So go ahead, girl. <laughs> awesome. Thanks so much. And all right. That is our show. Bye.